from the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one special guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Yamato. And I'm your other host, Tracy Brown. This week, we're joined by novelist Min Jin Lee. Her best-selling debut novel, Free Food for Millionaires, was published in 2007. It's about a young Korean-American woman named Casey Han who's chasing success in New York City in the 1990s. Min Jin followed up Free Food for Millionaires in 2017 with Pachinko, the epic multi-generational historical saga of a Korean-Japanese family. It was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction, among many other prizes. If that wasn't enough, Min Jin is also a prolific essayist, a public speaker, and a teacher. She talked to us about leaving her fancy lawyering job to write fiction, the extensive research that goes into each of her books, and how she's using her platform to address the ongoing racist attacks against Asian Americans. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we have this podcast at a major platform like the Los Angeles Times means that people are saying, hey, I'll do it. I'll stick my neck out and I'll be a little extra Asian. And I'm going, you know what? It's nice. (laughs) Jen, do you think she'll let us rename this podcast Extra Asian? Hmm, from Asian enough to extra Asian. Kind of a leap, but I like it. More about that and so, so much more coming right up. to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with novelist Min Jin Lee. Thank you so much for joining us, Min Jin. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Tracy and Jen. And um, yes, I do have a lot of side hustles. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. And in a pandemic, you've been very like on your hustle and very productive, it seems. Well, I'm 52 and I'm the sole provider for my family. So in a way, I think that I have my priorities. And also, I'm a, I'm a writer, which means that I'm a freelancer. That's what it is. So you, you kind of have to keep your game on. Well, I think for me, this is the biggest question for all writers, but why novels? Like, I feel like that's one of the hardest storytelling ways that is out there. You start off with a corporate lawyer. Just why novels? Well, I'm a big reader. So that is really the reason why I wanted to write a novel. And writing novels is really, for me, very, very difficult. I've only produced two in about 30 years. So I've had to have all these side hustles to basically pay for these things because I never wrote a book before on contract. And that's really important to share because a lot of people think that you have an idea, you contact the publisher and say, hey, I want to write a book. And it just doesn't work that way. So I wrote it on spec. And of course, in the film industry, you guys know, I wrote the entire thing and I presented it to somebody and said, hey, can I get one representation? I'd even have an agent when I wrote my first book. And it took me about 11 years of just kind of beating my head against the wall. Why did I choose novels? Because I think novels can create an incredible world That's really difficult to do in any other media. So that's why I did it. But for me, it was a very long struggle. I've met young, very talented writers who can just kind of pop them out. And I think that's awesome. But that was not me. (laughs) We hear about that struggle, that hustle to break into industries a lot when we were talking to filmmakers, for example, or TV writers. And it's so interesting to, to sort of get the perspective of somebody breaking into lit and publishing on spec. Also, your your novels are really long. That's a lot of spec writing. They're really, really long. <laughs> it's They're really long. And also they require so much research. And I've had to do so much field work, which I had to finance myself. And I had to hire translators when I didn't know things. And in the end, I'm really proud of my work, but I haven't produced as much as I would like because... I didn't have the financial backing. For my next book, I actually do. So I've been funded by the Guggenheim Foundation and I was funded by the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study at Harvard. And I want to just like say how important it is because if I didn't have that funding, I would have had to have even more hustles than I do now. (laughs) Well, you mentioned actually the projects you're working on now. I'm I'm very curious how how you've been able to be productive during a pandemic in this last year. (laughs) 
Well, I've also been really depressed and anxious, just like everybody else. And I'm not productive all the time. I'm very selective about what I do. And also, I want to just share this with anybody who's a writer or an entertainer or anybody who wants to be in the creative arts who's Asian American. Grace Paley, who's not Asian American, (laughs) once said, keep a low overhead. And that's really important because if you have a low overhead, then it's possible to be more selective about what you do. That seems like just good advice generally, right? For entrepreneurship. I think so, yeah. And the way that you broke in is seems very much like betting on yourself and like going into business for yourself. I definitely see myself as somebody who bet on myself. I have to consistently keep betting on myself. And that's really hard because it isn't like the world's been waiting for me because it has not. <laughs> and even though people talk about the rise of Asian American content being important, it's just completely nonsense because I see so many talented Asian Americans from every creative industry just like dying to get in and they're having very little support. You mean it's not just a matter of knocking on a door in the first door that opens, takes your manuscript, no, gives you that contract. <laughs> It wasn't for me. Yeah. Tell us about that experience. And like you've described it before as getting like a lot of no's until you got a yes. And I wonder what sustained you in that time. I believe that what I write about, the questions that I have are valuable to me. And then also I've worked a really long time to get my craft right. So initially when I did have no's, it isn't because I thought the world was unfair. As a matter of fact, Some of my no's, I'm really glad they were no's because I'm not proud of those works. Some of them, they weren't really excellent. So what I've had to do is try to figure out what is it that I really want to say? And then also, how do I say it really well? And that takes a long time, the apprenticeship. And I want to encourage, and especially younger folks, and even my students, I often say, what is it that you want to say? Like, what does Tracy want to say that only Tracy can say? What does Jen say that only Jen can say? And then all of a sudden you're thinking, hey, I have some real estate. But then how do you want to say it? And how do you say it in a beautiful way that'll be engaging and never waste the time of your audience? And that's really important. What's also interesting to me is that You won prizes for fiction and your nonfiction writing when you were in college, but you still chose to go to law school. I'm curious about like your decision on that and why. Well, poverty is really terrifying and I have no glamorous idea of poverty. As a matter of fact, especially when I work with my first gen students, I often say, you want to be a writer? Do you know what that means? I mean, because I wasn't first gen technically because both my parents went to college in Korea, but I did have a working class background for most of my life. And then my parents became middle class and they're very fine now. But I know exactly what it's like not to have money. And it's not fun at all. And I knew, because I'm not dumb, that being a writer takes a good enough time. So I didn't think I could be a writer. So I went to law school. And I'm not ashamed of it because I learned so much cool stuff in law school. Like, I'm not scared of talking in a boardroom. Like, I'm not. Like, and, and if someone says something that I disagree with, I'll just say, I disagree. And I'll tell them why. So I learned a lot about evidence and procedure. So if I had an infinite amount of capital, I would send all BIPOC people to law school. <laughs> just for finishing school, just so you could know what your rights are, because it's not taught in high school. It's not taught in middle school. And you should know your rights. It's also one of those tracks that seems like stable and one of the tracks to success so often? Well, actually, here it is. I have to disagree. (laughs) Ah. And I want to say this. You know why, Jen? Because I wouldn't want someone to not know what it's like. So if you don't go to a top law school, it's a very hard path. It's an incredibly hard path and incredibly expensive. So if you went to a certain kind of law school and you are sort of middling of that law school and you have $150,000 worth of debt, then you're going to have such a hard time getting a gig. And I say this because every time someone tells me I want to go to law school, I say, well, why? And if they tell me they just want to have a solid career, I say, "Mm, I don't know, because I don't know what your commitment level is. So I did okay. I went to a pretty good law school and I did end up getting a gig. But 
I had no idea what that meant. So very often, if someone tells me they want to go to law school and they want to borrow, let's say, six figures, that's a lot of money. I usually say, hey, try to be a paralegal first. Or read Free Food for Millionaires first. (laughs) (laughs) And see what Casey Hahn ends up choosing at the end of her journey. (laughs) Thank you. And also, as I said before, if I had an infinite amount of money, I would try to integrate legal education for everybody because you should know your rights. Definitely. I do want to echo, mention what you were saying about like really knowing that you want to go. Mm-hmm. I don't often say this, but I'm, I'm a law school dropout. Uh, I think I have equivalent of two L credits. Like I finished through this my second year and it took me that long to realize like I was very unhappy with what I was doing. And then like as an Asian American, I think it's hard to admit that you picked wrong. You were not doing what you wanted to do. That's what at least what it felt like for me. And I think that's why I stayed in school for that long. And then I was like, oh, I didn't get a degree. I still have this law school debt. Like, what am I supposed to do? See, I'm so glad you shared that because that really helps people. And I often talk about class and race because race is helpful. But class... I mean, you've got to live with that every single day. And very often in the Asian American community, there's an enormous amount of shame of certain kinds of class that you come from. And I call bullshit. <laughs> I'm curious to hear how that might come up in in talking about your origin story. You know, you immigrated with your family from South Korea at a young age. Uh, I think you were seven years old and grew up in New York City. So what kinds of memories stuck with you the most from that time in your life? I think when I first got to America, because I didn't speak English, and then also I was hysterically introverted and shy. I mean, I had a really hard run. And if I didn't have two sisters who were so much more socially successful than I was, then I would be inclined to say, oh, it's because I was an immigrant. But they were immigrants too, and they were just fine. (laughs) So, I mean, they weren't just fine, but they were able to function so much better than me. So then I realized, oh, it has something to do with me. And I still deal with this quite a bit. My memories were, I guess I had a good family, I guess. Not in every single way, but I did have a decent family and they were very loving. And my sisters were very protective of me because I was the troubled kid. And I thought that I was really developmentally delayed for a long time because I didn't do as well in school, in elementary school. I had a really hard time, not just not having friends, but even academically. And people are always really surprised. And I go, no, actually, that's true. And my parents thought, even in Korea, that there was something wrong with me developmentally. And now I just realize that that still could be true. It's just that I'm good at other things. (laughs) Was there a moment when you feel like your personality shifted. For me, for example, I feel like the age 17 is when I came to believe and and I think understand of my myself coming into myself. Like when I developed a, a voice, even at the family Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, I started speaking up and like asking questions more. I was more curious about the world. Uh, so for me, 17 felt very pivotal. But I wonder if there's a moment when you feel like you went from being that that shy kid who hardly spoke and had few friends to being who you are now. I love this idea of the watershed moment. It's very seductive. I don't have one. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, what's really funny is that it's, it's hypocritical as writers to not have one. But I want to tell you that because then all these other people will be thinking, oh, I have to have a moment Because I didn't have a moment. What I did have is I had this incredible wish to be more normal. That's really what it comes down to. I wanted to be normal. I wanted to have friends. And I was very fortunate because I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which was already my people in the sense where all of us were kind of nerdy. So then in a way, I was kind of in a safer space. And also my older sister went to the school as well. So I knew that if someone tried to kick my ass, I'm going to be okay (laughs) because I can call for backup. However, I started to take a lot of speaking classes. And gradually through taking all these speaking classes and then also trying things out like the debate team, which I didn't last very long, (laughs) all those 
events ended up kind of making me feel a little bit less anxious, a little bit less depressed, a little bit less afraid. So I'm still really afraid of public speaking. Like I'm afraid right now of making a mistake. And yet I've noticed that I didn't die. So sometimes my standard is like, I'll give a speech and I'll go, well, I didn't die. So <laughs> clearly my standards are different. You mentioned normal earlier. And I guess I'm curious because I think we all grow up with different ideas of what people are selling us as normal. What was your idea of normal when you were younger? And like, did you realize when it changed or did it change? I thought normal would mean being able to have more group interactions. So let's say I would have been able to talk to you, Tracy, directly. But then let's say I'm in a group with, let's say, you and Jen. I wouldn't necessarily know when to talk or when to interrupt the conversation. And one of the things that you really need to learn how to do in social engagement is, let's say, asserting your opinion and not just being passive. So in my classes, actually, for my poor students, oh my goodness, my poor students, I make them sit up straight. I make them project. I check them when they say the word like. I actually say these things because I say, I want you to be able to handle a job interview. Because you want to have a job. So if you have a job, it's helpful, right? <laughs> but in terms of all the nonsense of hateful people, I don't really put up with that. Like if someone said to me, I'm not normal because I'm a member of the BIPOC community, I would just say there's something not normal about your hatred. So I, I really do say those kinds of things. I get in trouble sometimes, but I say them with ideally deference and some respect in order to create a space for engagement. So I don't like when I disagree and say, I'll never deal with that person again. I mean, that takes an enormous amount, but it doesn't mean that I don't do that. Sometimes I do because people are so, I hate to say this, but evil. Some people are truly just, I don't even know how to get them into the conversation. So when you say this to your students, do you feel like you're arming them in some ways? I'm arming them. You're absolutely right. And I'm also trying to protect them because, you know, I'm 52. I'm a mom and I want them to do well. So it's not funny. Like I'm always rooting for my kids because they're so extraordinary. And also in us, especially in our writing seminar, it has to feel really safe because in order to be vulnerable, in order to be creative, I need to make sure as the grown up that you're okay. And that's important to me. There's something about what you just said about needing to be safe in a writing space that really resonates with me because in order to have a strong voice, you have to believe in yourself to a certain degree that is often hard to achieve. In order to have a strong singular voice, you have to feel safe and emboldened. And to get to those points in life, you have to kind of live a lot of life, right? Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like you formulated your understanding of identity, of what it means to be Asian American, what it means to be Korean American, what it means to be a Korean American woman, all of these things? Well, I'm 52. So very often I'll have a young person ask me that question. I mean, I don't know how young you are. You look incredibly young on Zoom. Not very, not young enough. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell you live in LA. <laughs> um, I think that one in 52 and two, I've done so much reading about our history. And that's really important because I'm a politicized person, not because I want to be cool. I'm not cool and that's okay. But I'm a politicized person because I know what happens. And also, I know what happened. And that level of history and political science and also theory has made me realize I have to be thoughtful. I have to be political. And even if it's very uncomfortable for me, I have to sometimes say things I don't want to say. Like what? Mm. Well, I was very upset about the Asian American hate incidents that are going on in the past several years, because it's historically been going on since the arrival of Asians on these shores. It's not something that's recent. But then the pandemic occurred, and I felt very strongly that I had to say something against the administration that we had that was saying terrible, terrible, reprehensible things against Asians. And that was hard for me to say, because... 
I didn't really want to get that involved in it. And sometimes it feels relentless. You're going like, really? Am I going to have to talk about that again? I'm kind of tired. <laughs> yeah. I'm super tired, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have race fatigue. A little bit of race fatigue. Yeah. But like how, we just admitted it, like we're tired. Like how, how do you find it in yourself to keep going? How was it that you're still able to speak up about this? Well, I try to give myself a certain amount of time that I will dedicate to things. And because I have five jobs, I have to say, okay, you know what? Let's say I'm going to be on Twitter for 15, 20 minutes. Let's say I read an article that I think is incredibly important. Then I will share it. And that's my time. Do I think of myself as 100% dedicated to dealing with race? I guess I am in all different ways. So I would never say that I can compartmentalize race because it's exactly who I am. I'll never be able to divorce that part of me. And I don't want to. I think it's actually kind of a fun part of me. And I think very often people talk about race and gender and sexuality as something kind of like a burden. And I kind of think, no, it's my best part. So I'm not leaving it on the table. I think it's been actually really helpful for me, I can say for sure, to see the things that that, that you've been sharing in those moments that you allow yourself on social media which is also a good reminder to like ration my social media exposure. But the things that you have shared, especially in the last months after the Atlanta shootings, have been galvanizing because there have been so many times when I am like, I don't have anything left to being able to formulate my own words. I would just say that it, it has been incredibly helpful for me to see people like you step up and take the podium at times. Oh gosh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. That really, you have no idea what that means to me because I'm a feminist and I really want to encourage Asian American women and young women and middle-aged women and boomers, everybody, just to kind of say, we will stand with this issue. And most of all, I want to talk about class because these are poor women who are murdered poor women. And we have this idea of Asians and Asian Americans being wealthy. And actually just ask any social scientist in the field, that just isn't true. <laughs> it just isn't true. So unless we talk about it, then we will have wrong ideas in the atmosphere and in the ether. So I do think if you said, oh, five minutes, for five minutes, I will talk about this. And fine, five minutes. It's better than nothing. <laughs> You're right, though, about, you know, the perception, the, the easy perception that Asians are all one thing, you know, pick a thing, mm -hmm. or all crazy rich, demonstrably not true, which is why it's so important to have a variety and a depth and a breadth to the kinds of stories that we have out there, which I feel like we're seeing a little bit more of now. I do. I do think it's getting a little better, but I disagree with people who say it's getting a lot better. I don't think that's true. I think that's like a nice idea. But I, I want you to take courage from the work that you're doing. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we have this podcast at a major platform like the Los Angeles Times means that people are saying, hey, I'll do it. I'll stick my neck out and I'll be a little extra Asian. And I'm going, you know what? It's nice. <laughs> I think it's great because imagine if you said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because I don't want to be seen as this. Then it wouldn't happen. And then these lies would perpetuate. We could use that as an alternate title for this podcast. The Extra Asian Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Extra Asian. <laughs> More of our conversation with Min Jin coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with novelist Min Jin Lee. For so many of us, the people around us are having conversations about the Asian American community and the Asian American experience for the first time. And there's like so much information that you want to share. Like, I don't even know where to start sometimes. I'm like, I just have all these feelings and I need, I need you to understand why there are so much feelings about all these different issues. Well, I love this idea of having all these feelings. 
And I believe that the expression that the young people use is all these feels, right? All the feels. <laughs> all the, thank you. All, the, all feels. the feels. See? And I want to attribute that to another generation. It's not what I want to say. I don't want to appropriate that from a younger group. But I love this idea of having all the feels. And I put quotation marks around myself because in order to have truth, you need to actually have a critical mass of information. What I really resent are people who are acting as gatekeepers, saying, no, this is the only way to understand this story. And that doesn't work. So I want to encourage people who don't feel extra Asian to talk about something. And it's okay if we disagree as long as we are respectful. And that's really important. I love that. I mean, that's really the reason this podcast was created to begin with. Because for myself as a fourth generation Japanese-American woman, I, for most of my life, felt very disconnected from my Asian-ness. It's something that really has only been a part of my professional life for a few years, you know? I always thought I was just writing about movies, but then you quickly learn that writing about movies is writing about life, and writing about life means opportunities to write about your life. One step led into the next to the next. Also... I love what you just said, because it's so important that you said, I felt disconnected from my Asian Americanness. Now here, let me just blow your mind. How about <laughs> if it wasn't you? How about if there was a conscious effort for folks to make you feel disconnected from your Asian Americanness? Because in order to succeed in the academy, you have to constantly divorce yourself from your race. Because if you ally yourself with your race and your gender and your sexual politics, very often they will say, you are not objective. You are biased. You can't possibly speak the truth about this. So then that's not your fault. If you're a smart person, and I mean smart, genetically smart and, and savvy, you're going, well, gee, who does succeed? Oh, it's people who actually ally themselves with people who are giving the powerful messages of this is how success occurs. So maybe you're a dumb person to say, hey, I'm going to talk about things that are not rewarded financially, professionally, academically, as well as status. And that would take an enormous amount of courage for a four or five-year-old to say. <laughs> so as soon as you step your feet into kindergarten and no one's saying, hey, being an Asian American is a cool thing. Why would you choose that unless there's something wrong with you? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, at the age of four and five in my childhood, I remember teachers mispronouncing my last name. And it was just something that is being talked about more, especially lately. Our colleague Ashley Lee wrote a great piece for the LA Times about the casual racism of getting somebody's name wrong. And it was something that I realized that I had just gotten accustomed to as a child, everyone was going to get my name wrong. And I'm going to argue that not only did you just get adjusted to it, you made yourself not feel that thing that you felt, which is different, other, mm -hmm. and that it hurt. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, again, going back to Tracy's idea of having all these feelings or, quote, all the feels, because why do we leave that feeling on the table? Why do we pretend that it doesn't exist? Because it does hurt to have casual racism. And again, this is really important. I think in this current discussion, there are so many different kinds of injuries. And you are told, not just by the majority, but actually by your own family very often, move beyond it. It's not that important. Why do you focus on those things? And here's some news for artists. You can't afford to leave that on the table. You need those feelings. You actually need to have the insight and the perceptiveness to actually take all of it in. It may cause you to feel depressed and irritated and anxious <laughs> and sometimes not even functional. However, if you want to be really good at what you do, you're going to have to admit to those feelings. Minjin, you're giving me like a lifetime of therapy here. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I'm just like sitting alone watching because I think one thing that I've always been aware of that separates me from, you know, a lot of other like Asian Americans is like, I'm half Nisei. So like my name is Tracy Brown. No one has ever messed up my name. Just if you look at my name on a list, like I can be anyone in the crowd, really, if it's just a name on a list. I think that's a part of understanding. We do have all these different experiences and relationships to the experiences and the narratives that are prevalent. 
let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because kids who are biracial or multiracial and have the experience of being treated as Asian, even if they may not identify it, or even if their families of origin don't recognize it. And how about kids who are adopted, who have names that don't necessarily reflect what your group is? And it is a cruel thing, a cruel thing to have to go somewhere when people go, what, you're Tracy Brown? I don't understand, (laughs) right? And I say this because my son is 75% Asian American. He looks entirely Asian, East Asian specifically. And my husband is half Japanese and he's half white American. And I remember, and his last name is Duffy, D-U-F-F-Y. So I remember going to Ireland, okay? And we go to the hotel and we go to the counter and we're like, the Duffies are here. (laughs) And of course, the hotel manager is looking at us like, I don't understand. And I'm thinking, no, this is a 21st century pal. Start to understand. I feel kinship with your husband as like, my dad was half Japanese and half white. So like, that's where Brown comes from. (laughs) Which is fine, right? Which is fine. I want to take us back to some of the characters, the protagonists of your stories. We have Casey Han in Free Food for Millionaires and Sunja in Pachinko, both of whom, like their mere existence. Sorry, I'm going to say that without saying like, I'm learning. I'm very proud of you for that correction. It takes a long time for folks to learn something and then to apply it. And that's usually the sign of intelligence. It's like, can you take a new piece of knowledge and apply it? That's hard. Here I go. (laughs) We have Casey Han of Free Food for Millionaires and Sunja in Pachinko, whose existences both defy this invisibility of API heroines that still is so prevalent throughout every single kind of media whether that's books, movies, TV, across arts and literature. And both of them are also being adapted into TV series now, which is exciting. I think there's a lot to be said about representation, the mere act of representation, where there has been so little feeling radical in itself. But to know that the representation comes from stories as deep and rich and specific as yours is even more exciting, I think. Talk to us a little bit about what it's been like to see these characters jump off, first of all, out of your imagination, out of your lived life, onto the page and now onto the screen. Has it been hard to entrust others to take care of your characters and your protagonists? Well, the thing about Free Food for Millionaires I got involved and I decided to draft the pilot script on spec, again, on spec, because I so cared about getting it right. And then I found an incredible partner in Alan Yang. And we decided, hey, we're going to go out and try to share this with streamers and see who we connect with. And then we chose Netflix to develop the pilot. That was incredibly difficult. It was so difficult. However, right now, it hasn't yet been greenlit. We're in the development process, so we'll see if it ever gets to screen. But no matter what, what's really important to me is to have integrity about the lives of Asian Americans. And that's the reason why I decided that I would put my books on hold for the moment and write those seven scripts, because I care so much about getting us right. And I'm going to say something about Hollywood. Hollywood's a weird, weird place. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I could see why so many novelists have gone to Hollywood and had to retreat because it's a different format. It's a different art form. And there's so many voices in the creation process. So we'll see how long I last in Hollywood. And if I don't last, you'll know about it. (laughs) Right. And we will be watching, of course. Uh, So... Pachinko is this epic saga that follows multiple generations of a Korean immigrant family in Japan through the 20th century. But there's a character that you introduce actually towards the end of Pachinko, who her name is Phoebe. She's actually an Asian-American woman. 
And your novels, they both have this omniscient perspective, but you're still able to give characters that we only meet maybe for one or two pages their own their own dignity, the dignity of owning their own stories, of, of having the right to their own stories and their own perspective. And that's, of course, without spoiling Pachinko, which everyone out there should definitely go buy and read right now. Thank you. <laughs> but, but Phoebe, she makes the decision in these few pages of Pachinko that I think allows us, the readers, to embrace a larger understanding of empathy, where we kind of understand why she might have a different perspective as an Asian American person. And I just think that's a, a beautiful small thing that you do in that novel. Oh, thank you. That's an incredibly important thing for you to say to me because Phoebe is my favorite character in Pachinko in many ways. And she is the Asian American female who is visibly Asian American and she is second generation. So it's really important to me because I have so many students who are second generation and third generation and fourth generation Asian American and Asian Canadian. Like, so I meet these people and I kind of think, oh, where's your parade? <laughs> and I want them to have a parade too. And I also want them to be accepted. I think gatekeepers really need to rethink why we have those gates. And the only gatekeepers I want to see are people who are honest. If you're honest, I'm okay. But it's not the content of what you say. It's actually the quality of what you say. The first line of Pachinko, history has failed us, but no matter. For me as a writer, like the first line of any story is probably takes me as long to think about as the rest of the story. But um, but for you, I, can you give us the origin of this line? What does it mean to you? How do you pick where you start your book? Oh, well, the first line of my book is always my thesis statement. And if you look at both my books, I'm telling you what the thesis is. And I'm telling you, buckle up. This is what we're going to talk about. And if you want to hang out, hang out. So history has failed us, but no matter. The most important thing is but no matter part. Because I believe that history has failed all ordinary people of whatever background. The way history works, and I, I trained as a history person at college, is you need to have evidence in order to have a story. So it's not that history is a bad field or that historians are bad people. That's not true. Historians tend to be usually significantly more enlightened than the average bear. Now, having said that, what happens if your family, and I want to say family, if your family member didn't have primary documents that were considered important, what happens to them? Maybe they're important to you, but is that history known? Now, think about this. How Few people in America know Asian American history. It's reprehensible. It is not okay. So as Asian Americans, history has absolutely failed us. So when folks are saying ignorant things about Asian Americans, it's very often because they don't know. Do I blame them? No, I don't blame them. I actually blame the educational system. And as a member of the educational system, I take that very seriously. Now, finally, but no matter... What does it mean when people don't think you're important? Are you supposed to crawl up into a corner and die? No, that has not been my experience with Asian Americans. Asian Americans and Asians around the world and poor people around the world of whatever background, we didn't all curl up and die. We didn't all curl up and say no more. We actually said, I'm going to work around this. I'm going to figure this out. And I wanted to honor them. Now, if you did want to curl up and die and feel depressed about it, I'm one of your people too. It isn't like I'm not discouraged. I'm very often discouraged. As a matter of fact, I'm probably too often discouraged. However, I also take great comfort and consolation from meeting people all over the world who've basically said, I'm not giving up. Along those lines, you're talking about the importance of us knowing world history, right, and Asian history and Asian American history. I think Pachinko, for example, is a work that, for me, lit a spark of realizing that I don't have anywhere near a complete understanding of how my family's history intertwines with history history. And I wonder if you can describe the process of either disentangling or entangling those histories uh, as you prepared Pachinko, as you prepared your mind to have the knowledge of how to write worlds and experiences and times and 
family history and world history that you didn't yourself live through? Well, this is interesting. This is really interesting to me because you're both writers, right? So if someone said to you, hey, I want you to write an article about War and Peace, the book by Tolstoy. Most likely, if it was something that you had to write about, one, you would probably read the book and you'd probably look at some of the collateral material around the book. And then it would give you the authority and the confidence to write that piece. Well, I decided I'm going to take on 20th century Korean history. Why? Because I'm nuts. <laughs> and it took me almost three decades because the thing that I really wanted to do is to be accurate. And this book is taught by a lot of historians in many universities around the world. And I think it's because I respected what they were doing. So will we create certain things quickly? No. And going back to your question of how do you approach anything, you guys know. You guys know exactly what you have to do. If I said to you, can you write a story about a good taco place in Los Angeles? You would go to the taco place right? <laughs> you would eat some tacos. And then you would talk to customers who say, that taco is rubbish, or that taco is insane. And then you would try to figure out and get the quotes. It's no different for a book. And the reason why I'm making it so simple is because we're writers, we're creators, we're, we're artists. And in order for us to be any good, we have to have integrity in our process. And that's really important to me. I'm not just interested in outcome. I'm really interested in process. And I'm going to say something strange. I care about ethics. I care about it a lot. And that means that I can't say yes to everything. I say no to a lot of things if I don't agree with the politics of something. And the morals, which makes me weird. And, and I'm not trying to be high and mighty because that's not it. It's just that sometimes I just don't agree with certain groups. And I go, well, I, I can't do that. I'm sorry. What struck me about Pachinko, I think, is it's always been in the back of my mind that the Asian diasporic experience outside of America. But for you in researching for this book, I guess, how did living outside of America or this research shape or clarify your understanding of how there is a connection? You know, I think it's about shaping me. And I want to go back to Jen's question about entanglement, right? Because I think that sometimes when we're younger, or much, much younger, like let's say four, five, six, you're often told stories where this is a good guy, this is a bad guy. And then as you get older, you realize, no, that's not true. <laughs> There's a good guy and a bad guy, and sometimes a good guy makes a terrible decision, or sometimes a bad guy makes a terrible decision, or a good decision. A novel, and I was trying to write a good novel, I wanted to show that kind of complexity. So the entanglement, and this is a seduction of progressive politics, and I'm somebody who is progressive. The seduction of it is to try to find somebody who's pure. <laughs> the seduction is to try to find somebody who is without fault. And the seduction is to say, I will never deal with this person because they're reprehensible. That's a tough world to live in. And as a matter of fact, no one can really live in that world. So for me, my attitude is, how about if we start telling the truth? If we tell the truth, then we can get somewhere. What's really dangerous is when we say, we're not going to talk about this, we're going to talk only about this. The party is not going to be one fun <laughs> if purity is the test. And the party will be really small if purity is the litmus test. So going back to this whole idea of shaping is that I've become really tolerant of so many different kinds of people because I see how difficult it is to be alive Sometimes I get help from people I don't like. That's happened to me. And I go, oh, I don't like you, but you are nice. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> and I tell this to my students too, because when you're younger, it is so seductive to say not nice people are all bad. Not true. And therefore I am good in my, yeah. in my estimation of that. Yeah. Right. Or people who are more authentic than others. Mm -hmm. So I get this a lot about being a Korean American, and I wrote a book about 20th century Korean history. So am I enough? Right? Am I Korean enough? I just don't feel any shame about my qualifications. I just don't. And if you wanted to say that I'm not qualified, then I'm like, make my day, write a book. <laughs> We've kind of touched on this before, like when we were talking about how you use your platform, but I'd love to, to hear you talk about why you use your platform and, and why you use your voice. So we're talking now a few months after the Atlanta shootings. But of course, 
anti-Asian hate, racism in general, classism, all the isms are not anything new. But it can often feel like it, it takes a big event to, to get more people talking, to get more people using their voice. And I think we did see that recently in the Asian American community. I think it's an exciting time. And if I talk about certain things, it's because I really want to encourage everyone to feel like it's going to be okay. As a general rule, I will not shame people. I will not try to hurt people's feelings. And that's a weird thing on Twitter. <laughs> I think that on Twitter, it's very easy to clap back. It's very easy to say, oh, this person is reprehensible or horrible. I I've seen that. And I understand why they do it because sometimes I feel rage. I, f I see red and I'm going, whoa, <laughs> because some things are that outrageous. However, I know that most Asian Americans, and this is so important to talk about, is the history of immigration. When we talk about Asian America, not only are we talking about different ethnicities and different countries of origin, we're talking about generations. And I'm so glad you said you're fourth generation because that means that you're Yonsei, right? It's a specific term for being a fourth generation Japanese American. So if you're a Japanese American and you're a Yonsei, so how far was the internment for a Yonsei person, right? Like, can you talk about it all day long? Probably not. Should you talk about it all day long? Probably not. However, how many people in America even know about the internment? It's insane how few people know about it. How many people talk about the mass lynchings against Chinese Americans in this country who built the freaking railroads, right? So I'm talking about class 101 in Asian America the first day, and most people don't know. So do I want you guys to talk about it all day, all night? I mean, it'll be kind of not very fun to hang out with us if that's all we did. <laughs> However, do I think that we need to start changing the way our educational system is? Yes. And that will never happen unless we as members of the media start to demand change. And I think for me, it's not just about, hey, go be nice. I'm saying, no, know what's going on. Stop saying silly things if you don't know what's going on. So I do feel that if I do know things and if I can find the energy and the intelligence to talk about it in a specific way for, let's say, of my 20 minutes of social media on Twitter, I will try. I will try. We like to wrap up our episodes with a recurring segment we've renamed to Asian Enough Confessions. These are confessions in which we share a moment or an experience that made us feel less than enough so we can kind of unpack it together, like group therapy, which I feel like we've done a lot of in this episode already. <laughs> I think I want to share first, building off what you're talking about with Jen being Yonsei. I am Japanese American. I'm a new Nisei, which means like I didn't learn about Japanese American incarceration camps until I went to the museum and saw the exhibit as like a late high school student. It wasn't even something I really learned in school. So there was this whole history of my community that I just was not aware of and did not know. Like, I'm a part of that community, but I'm not because I'm my family immigrated after that. But you know so much, you know, you know more than it suggests when you say it like that. Also, again, you guys are being so nice because you guys aren't blaming the fact that it's not your fault. Yes, it's not our fault. It's not your <laughs> fault. <laughs> like when we say we're not going to teach global history in high school, whose fault is that? <laughs> Right? <laughs> when we say this is history, but there are whole chapters left behind, whose fault is that? And I think sometimes when I hear people say ignorant things and they don't know, I don't blame them. Why would I get mad at them? Because I'm like, well, you don't know. And how much of it is incumbent upon you to say, you know what? I need to read Ronald Takaki, Strangers on a Different Shore. Now, I just gave a name. Ronald Takaki, a great American historian who's Japanese-American. Ronald Takaki changed my life when I read him in high school. And that's the reason why I think it's so important to have Asian-American history and global history taught in high schools. Because once you go to college, it's kind of like a buffet. You take what you can, but a lot of people, you won't take whatever is not required. And that means that all Americans should know. Like, I think every American should know African-American history in high school, not in college, in high school. And that's important. And also, I think you should know LGBTQ history. There, I said it. And if you don't know it, you're going to be missing out on a humongous understanding of the world, not just America, the world. So uh, to answer your question about Asian enough, as you can tell, I'm a little Asian extra. So 
Were you always so? Did you always feel that? Though? I think so. I mean, my name is Minjin Lee. It, it isn't like people are thinking automatically that I am somebody else. So I'm physically, obviously visible as an Asian American person. And also I have this name. So wherever I go, I get treated as such. As a matter of fact, even in my readings today, when I do a public event, people often ask me, was your book translated? They actually ask me that question. And I go, seriously? Or they'll say something like, hey, you're funny. I didn't expect that. Like as if a person with my name couldn't be funny. And I'm actually not that funny, but I just find that interesting as an idea. Where I have not felt Asian enough is when I go to Asia. And I've had gatekeepers often tell me, well, you're not this, you're not that. And I'm just thinking, why did you ask me to come? Like, I could have stayed home and been insulted by my family. I didn't <laughs> need to come here. <laughs> Do you have an Asian enough confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. And that's a wrap. Thank you to novelist Min Jin Lee for joining us. And thank you for listening. Extra Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by my colleague, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our producer, Lina Anwar. Come back next week for another great episode. It's our conversation with drag queen and fashion icon, Jujubi. I'm many stereotypes and I embrace all of those. Like I, I'm gay, I'm a brown Asian, I'm left-handed, I'm feminine, and I love every single part of that. And remember, if you're gonna listen to our podcast, go all in. Buckle up. This is what we're going to talk about. And if you want to hang out, hang out. <laughs>